Well, I want to take you back this morning to a date in history. Tuesday, May 8th, 1945. This date has a name. What, what's the name of this date? Does anyone know? V-E Day. V stands for victory and E stands for Europe. It was the Victory in Europe Day. The day that World War II ended, Adolf Hitler, the Nazi leader, had committed suicide a week before this, and the surrender was authorized by his successor, Karl Dunitz. And after nearly six years of fighting in Europe, the Allied forces came out victorious. Now, do you know what happened in that day? you have any idea what happened in that day? I have some pictures. I have a bunch of pictures for you, what, what happened in that day. This is Piccadilly Circus in London. Mobs of people, like all over the place. Here's the crowd outside Buckingham Palace, where the king and queen of England appeared to celebrate even with the people. Here's Winston Churchill, waving to the crowds gathered at Whitehall on that day. And to give you an idea of the the craziness of that day, here's some Brits in, on, around, on top of a car near the Tower of London. It was, a, it was a grand celebration, as England particularly celebrated that day. But it wasn't merely in England alone. Celebrations took place... This place, where's this? This is France, right? The Arc de Triomphe. There were just... Look at that. I mean, just crowds and crowds of people all out. Times Square, even in America, was just packed with people. Even a ticker tape was flying down from some of the skyscrapers and... Here's some Americans elated that Germany had surrendered. Now, World War II was, was not finished at this time. They were still fighting in the Pacific. VJ Day, or victory over Japan, didn't take place for another three months when Japan finally surrendered. But in those dark days, the victory in Europe signaled a major step towards peace as the Allied forces tasted a measure of victory on that day. And there's this great celebration. And after the bombs were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, similar celebrations felt around the world on VJ Day. This is, again, Piccadilly Circus in England on VJ Day. Here are Americans in, in Paris rejoicing. This is Times Square yet again. This is Pearl Harbor. How appropriate for them to celebrate on VJ Day victory over the the Japanese. And you can't help, I just show these pictures because you, you feel the joy and excitement of the people of the world on that day. These gatherings here were not planned. It, it's not like they were planned vacations or, or planned 4th of July or some celebration, right? We're all going to scroll on State Street or something like that. It's not about that at all. They, they, they weren't planned at all. They were spontaneous celebrations set off across the world. And I show you these pictures because this is the emotion of our text this morning. Revelation chapter 19. You can open with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 19. We've been working our way through the book of Revelation chapter by chapter, and we come this morning to Revelation chapter 19. The the great bombs of judgment have been dropped in Revelation 16, 17, and 18, and God's day of victory has come at last. And there's great rejoicing when God's day of victory comes. In fact, that's the title of my message this morning, is the day of victory. It comes from Revelation chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. 
And we're coming close to the end of our, our book of uh, our exposition of Revelation. We have been here for oh, eight, nine months or so, just kind of looking at chapter by chapter, and we've seen much about the righteousness of God and His coming judgment, whether it's the angels opening His scrolls in Revelation chapter 6 or blowing the trumpets in 8 and 9, or whether it's pouring out the bowls in Revelation chapter 16. All of these judgments have come to a climax in chapter 17 and 18 where the great prostitute, the, the beast of Babylon, are all soundly defeated. And this morning we come to Revelation 19, the day of victory. I want to read the text for you. Revelation 19, verses 1 through 10. And after this I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Alleluia! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For His judgments are true and just, for He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Alleluia! The smoke, go from her, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen! Alleluia! And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Alleluia, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. And then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, You must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. The testimony of Jesus is a spirit of prophecy. I'm not sure whether you noticed or not, but the, the word Alleluia appears four times in this text. That's why we sang so many Alleluia songs today. Oh, praise Him, oh, praise Him, Alleluia, Alleluia. Our delight and our reward, Alleluia, oh, praise Him. It comes in verse 1. Verse 1 says this, Alleluia, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. In verse 3, once more, they cried out, Alleluia, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. Verse 4, the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, Alleluia. In verse 6, then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, crying out like mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Alleluia, for the Lord, our God, the Almighty, reigns. Now I trust you know what the meaning of the word Alleluia is. It's a Hebrew word. It's, it's actually a, a command. The command is to praise the Lord. Hallel is the, the verb to praise. Allelu is the extension that's a command. You all praise. Second person plural. You all praise. And then Yah is a shortened form of Yahweh. Praise Yahweh. Praise the Lord. It's a command to praise the Lord. Now, you many time, do you know how many times Alleluia occurs in the New Testament? Can we take a guess? Four. Four times. They're all right here in this passage. It's as if the entire Bible 
Calling people to praise the Lord is reaching its climax here in Revelation chapter 19. Once God's victory is secure and finished and final, and it is there, it's alleluia, praise the Lord. Ever since the, the fall in the garden, there's been this angst and this trouble and this d- depression of, of, of people and their sin. And then Christ comes and he secures our death and redemption, but it's not quite yet. But here in chapter 19, we see it all secured and already, and the victory right there, just like VE Day and VJ Day. And, and the commander to praise the Lord isn't coming in the context because there's a lack of praising the Lord. Oftentimes we see a command in the Bible, you think to yourself, why is Paul giving this command or why is Jesus giving this command? It's often because there's a lack. And there's no, no lack here. It's, it's spontaneous exhortation to join all in the rejoicing of the victory of God on this day of victory, right? When judgment has landed finally on this day of the world and, and God has finally vindicated all of the evil that God has overlooked for, for centuries and millennia, promising it to be redeemed in Christ. He's now judged. And those who loved him and served him are now joining with him in his joy over this victory, and we ought to feel like those of VE Day and VJ Day. Okay, the day of his victory, my first point is this. The victory parade, simply what I'm, I'm calling it. That's, that's essentially what we have in verses 1 through 5. We see the multitudes gathering in the streets, ticker tapes pouring down from heaven and rejoicing in God's victory. Looking in here at verse 1. <clears throat> and after this I heard what seemed to be a loud voice of a, a great multitude in heaven crying out, now, notice, first of all, this isn't quite what John normally experiences. Normally, it, it says something like this, chapter 4, verse 1, and after this, I looked, and behold, a door was open in heaven. Chapter 7, verse 1, after this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. Chapter 9, verse 7, after this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude. Chapter 10, verse 1, then I saw a mighty angel coming down from heaven. Chapter 13, verse 1. Then I saw a beast rising up out of the sea. He sees, he sees, he sees. But it's different. But here, he hears. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven. That is, he hears a multitude of people in one voice saying, Alleluia. I was talking to someone this week about congregational readings. This is congregational reading. The multitude in one voice saying the same thing. And here's what they cried out. They said, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For His judgments are true and just. For He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of the saints. In other words, right? God won! Hallelujah! God won! It is His day of victory. God has saved His saints. He has shown his power and glory in judging the great prostitute. That, that takes us back. Remember a few weeks ago in Revelation chapter 17. We're looking at the fall of this great prostitute who's identified, chapter 17, verse 5, as being Babylon. And then, and then 18 expanded further about Babylon and the judgment there, representing all the pleasures of the world, which have now faded away. And God has finally judged them. It's VG day. Victory of God on that day. And God has finally avenged the blood of his servants. This takes us back to Revelation chapter 6. You remember there, the, 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 the martyrs were underneath the altar and they cried out, Revelation chapter 6, verse 10, O sovereign Lord, 
Holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell in the earth? They'd been killed unjustly. And they were underneath the altar and pleading that God would come and avenge and judge those who shed their blood in, in the judgment of Babylon. He's avenged their blood and avenged all the martyrs for all, all time. And the affirmation for his judgment comes right there in verse 2. His judgments are true and just. I think this is one of the keys of understanding Revelation, understanding Revelation 19, that his judgments are true and just. They're to be celebrated. Right? We saw this back in chapter 18, verse 20, right? Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. There's a way in which we ought to rejoice at the judgment of God when it comes true and just upon an unbelieving, rebellious world. Chapter 19 is, is merely expanding on chapter 18 and verse 20. It's, it's the rejoicing. And the question really comes to us all. Right? Do you see the wickedness of the world? Untold billions of people rebelling against the Lord? Do you see a just judgment that, that the world is due? His judgment upon all who are not bowing the knee to the Lord of lords and the King of kings? There, there must be something within you to say, God, you must judge that sin. If you don't understand the judgment, you have no understanding of your salvation in Christ. You need to understand that God judges, and that's what he saves us from. And that's what Revelation 19 is talking about, really the heart of it. The judgment has been accomplished. God's people have been revealed. And God is to be glorified. Hallelujah. We see the next hallelujah in verse 3. Once more, they cried out. That is, this whole great multitude in heaven cried out with a single voice. Hallelujah. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. That's an allusion to the lake of fire that we'll see in chapter 20, verse 10. It says, The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they'll be tormented day and night forever and ever. You know, there are people who don't believe in hell. And they say, well, that, that, that's like too big a punishment. And for those who say that, they don't realize the greatness of our sin, right? Because a sin is measured really against who you sinned against. And if you measure against a sin against an important person, say the President of the United States, your sin is great. You even make a threat against the President, you're in jail. But if you sin against an infinitely holy God, your punishment is infinite. And that's the reality here, the, the smoke which goes up forever and ever. And Revelation 19 reports that there'll be praise in God, praise in heaven to God for the eternal punishment in hell forever. That's God's true and just judgment. That, that's, that's not my feeling. That, that's the teaching of the text. That's a teaching of what Revelation teaches us. And for all the pictures I showed, the day of the joy in the world ending in World War II, there wasn't rejoicing everywhere. Not in Germany. Not in Japan. Oh, sure, for, for the people, for many of them, relief and joy just to be done with this whole fiasco. But the leaders who were tried for war crimes were not rejoicing in that day. They knew what was coming. A few of them were held responsible in the Nuremberg trials, which followed the war. But many escaped judgment. But some paid. But not here in Revelation 19. God's judgment here is thorough and complete. No one's going to escape this judgment 
And God's servants will rejoice because God is perfectly just. How he, fix it all, how he figures it all, I have no idea. Like, like the war in Gaza right now, it is, it is wrongs on both sides. It is difficult. How do you figure all that out? God's going to figure it out perfectly. All his just, judgments are true and just and right. And that's where the rejoicing comes because it's finally done. Well, another alleluia comes there in verse 4. Look at this. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen, alleluia. You remember these guys, the 24 elders and the four living creatures? They first appeared in Revelation chapter 4. The, the 24 elders were, were seated on 24 thrones around the throne where God is. They were clothed in white garments giving praise to God. And here they are doing the same. They are giving praise to God. Amen. Let so be it. Hallelujah. So it's not only just people who are worshiping the Lord in the judgment. It, it's also the angelic beings, these elders, whoever they are. And the four living creatures in, are described in Revelation chapter 4 as having six wings. And having eyes all around and within, day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And now these four living creatures stop their flying. They take a knee to bow before the Lord on the throne, and they say, Amen, Alleluia. Do I need to do anything with this at all? All right, we'll just deal with it. Oh, here we go. That's my tail. That's my tail. Here we go. All right. Humorous interlude to help put a smile on your face so we can come at this pretty heavy passage. Okay, verse 5. The praise continues in verse 5. And from the throne there came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him small and great. Now, we don't know who this voice is. Some say Jesus, but it's talking about our God, so probably not that. It's some anonymous voice that John hears calling all his servants. That is, all who fear the Lord, whether you're small or whether you're great, everyone is called to praise our God, which, I mean, it's not hallelujah, but it means the same thing as hallelujah. In fact, we see that oftentimes. Even though the word hallelujah only occurs four times in the New Testament, it doesn't mean that there's absence of praising the God. It's all over, just that word isn't there. And here, it's not the word there, but it is the same command to praise God, this time in Greek rather than Hebrew transliterated. That's the heart of the victory parade we see here in verses 1 through 5. The crowds in heaven gathered together to praise the Lord, praising Him for the victory that He has obtained. It's just like VE Day and just like VJ Day. There, there was more work to be done to bring the war to conclusion. Right? Agreements needed to be signed and about post-war conditions. Troop withdrawals needed to take place. The rebuilding efforts plan justice upon the guilty. And we're going to see these things in Revelation 19 and 20. But in Revelation 19, we see the defeat of Babylon. The victory has been secured. It is the day of victory, and there is much reason for rejoicing. Well, let's move on. We've seen the, the victory parade, and now we move to what I'm calling the victory party. It's in the second half of chapter 19. This is the marriage supper of the Lamb. Verse 6, And then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out again, this unified multitude saying together in one loud voice, they all said it, Alleluia, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. This is the reality of why there's rejoicing in heaven. It's because God, the Almighty, rules and reigns. He's finally come to full victory, to rule and reign in heaven and on earth. This is the answer to the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. 
Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And this is the reign in heaven coming upon the earth and establishing his kingdom. And so verse 7 says, let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. Because the marriage of the Lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. This isn't just rejoicing at at the greatness of God. This is rejoicing at the redemption of God. It's it's the marriage that has come. Of course, this is a a metaphor that we're probably familiar with in some regard, right? The the lamb is the bridegroom. the, The bride is God's people, the church. And the party we're talking about here is the great wedding feast. Coming together, redeemed. The lamb with his bride, a day of celebration. And this, by the way, stands in great contrast with the prostitute of chapter 17. That prostitute committed sexual immorality with all the kings of the earth. Revelation 17, verse 2. She made the world drunk with her sin. She was full of blasphemous names. She was full of abominations, impurities, and her sexual immorality. And she was adorned with the riches of the world. The bride here, on the other hand, is clothed differently. If you look at verse 8. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen are the righteous deeds of the saints. She's not clothed with blasphemous names and blasphemous words like the great prostitute of chapter 17. No, she was, she was clothed in purity with, with righteous deeds of the saints. Of course, right, Revelation, this is all pictorial, right? This is a, is a picture here. And you say, what, what are these righteous deeds? I say they're self-sacrificial Acts of love that the God's servants do. It's just what the church does. So we do, right? I just, I just wrote down a few of them, like, like helping the homeless. That's what we do. Like forgiving those who have wronged us. Good deeds of the saints. Acknowledging others in humility above yourself. Feeding the hungry. Giving to those in need. Working for justice in this world. Dealing fairly with others. Remaining faithful to your promises. Even, as Psalm 16, 15 says, you swear to your own hurt. Even if you made a promise, it's going to hurt you. Whatever, financially, it's going to cost you. Yet you still stay true to that. It's a righteous deed of the saints. Remaining faithful to family in all your relationships. Marriage, children. The good deeds of the, the saints are showing patience toward others, especially when you're being stretched in your patience. First Peter 4, someplace, says that we should love each other stretchingly, even when we're being pulled in our patience, being patient with the sin of others, embracing reconciliation with others when there's tension and conflict, coming together, trying to come together, Showing self-control in the midst of temptation. Resisting the sinful way and walking in a righteous way. Maintaining a disciplined life of devotion to God, right? Loving God, praising Him, even as His commands. Those are righteous deeds of the saints, the worship of God. Overflowing in, in gratitude towards others. Encouraging one another day by day, as long as it's still called today. Remaining steadfast through the life's trials. Those are good deeds. And that brings a blessing. Blessed is a man who remains steadfast under trial, for he will receive the crown of life. Here's the crown of life. Remaining steadfast in trial. Those are some of the righteous deeds here. 
welcoming strangers into your home with open arms, praying for those you love, praying for the lost who need Christ, repenting of your own sin before others, confessing your sin to others. These are good deeds. These are the righteous deeds the bride of Christ will be clothed with. This is what's characteristic of the bride of Christ are these sorts of things, bearing the burdens of others, we're offering support, comfort, and practical assistance in need, seeking peace among those in conflict, blessed are the peacemakers, trying to reconcile two bodies together, living in integrity, encouraging the faint-hearted, helping the weak, sharing your faith, demonstrating joy in difficult circumstances. I mean, this is just a few of the righteous acts of the saints with which the bride will be clothed. And that's the vindication of God's justice, right? The great prostitute, on the one hand, who hates the Lord, is judged for her sin. And the bride's altogether different. She demonstrates she loves the Lord doing these righteous deeds. That's not that these deeds save in any way, right? But it's characteristic, right? What's characteristic of the woman is her sin. What's characteristic of the bride is her, her walking in the ways of the Lord. And then we read this in verse 9. It's like the best verse of the whole thing because it, it's, it brings up another one of these blessed statements. You remember Revelation started with that, blessed is the one who reads and those, blessed are those who hear the words, the reading of this book, right? It's a, it's a book of blessing. Revelation is not to bring confusion or angst or fear. It's to bring blessing and comfort and joy and delight. And here is where the blessing is, is we can look forward and anticipate this wedding to which we are invited. He says, write this. The angel said to me, verse 9, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. And so caught up in the moment, verse 10, I fell down at his feet to worship him. Like, oh, this is so great. And he starts worshiping this angelic being. And he says, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of of prophecy. I I think that John, being so caught up, the excitement of all is like many at VE Day and and VJ Day. Like They're ready to do anything, right? They're ready to to worship and show their their excitement. Perhaps you remember this picture, right? Perhaps the most famous picture in all of VJ Day. How many of you have seen this picture before? Here's the idea of this. This sailor, maybe drunken, we don't know. He was walking up, I think it was Times Square, and he was kissing all the women, just so excited, so excited. He was acting in our day and age in light of the Me Too movement and sexual assault inappropriately. But you can, you can share his compassion, his excitement. And so John here was inappropriate. But with his excitement, he was trying to, to worship anything. We don't worship beings or angels or people. We worship the Lord, the Lord God only. Well, let's go back to verse 9 because we're going we're to dwell here as we think about this wedding feast and transition to the Lord's Supper and how, how appropriate it is. Verse 9, it's like a, a wedding reception. The angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And we see in verse 7 that the bride has made herself ready. You think about weddings. One of the things I love about weddings is all the work that comes into it. 
you know, prep, preparing beforehand, writing out all the invitation, preparing the dresses and arranging the, the tuxes or the suits or whatever it's going to be and, and arranging all the, the little fun things, the little party favors and everything. It's, all, it's like all, all been prepared and now it's all prepared. The bride has made herself ready and then we get to sit down at this ultimate wedding reception and we get to see the bride and the groom How at long last, they begin to live their lives together. They've been waiting for this for a long, long time. They've wanted to get married. Not yet, not yet, not yet. And then the day of their wedding comes, and there is utter joy and utter excitement on their face. And the people invited to the reception are happy for them. But this, this is the ultimate wedding reception when Jesus is wed to the church. The bride promised to him long ago. Even before time began, this bride was promised, and now it's there. And this is certainly, by the way, I love this picture, the, the largest wedding reception that will ever be. All believers in Christ, from the dawn of creation until his coming, will be at this wedding reception. I, I've, I've seen a picture like this, other pictures like this, that's sort of like, okay, you got this wedding table, and it goes on, it kind of goes off ad infinitum, kind of forever, ever, never, never. And who knows how many untold millions or billions are going to be at that wedding reception. Okay, have you ever thought about who's going to be there? Abraham and Sarah. Isaac and Rebecca. Jacob and... Rachel, Joseph, and Moses, and Gideon, and David, and Bathsheba, and Abigail, Ezra, and Nehemiah, Ruth, and Naomi, and Boaz. The disciples will be there. Mary, mother of Jesus. Mary Magdalene, the the sinful woman, seven demons are cast out of her. The disciples... Peter, Andrew, James, and John, the apostles, Paul, Barnabas will be there, Luke, the author, Mark will be there, Tychicus, Philemon, like you just start naming people that they're going to be there, and church history, Chrysostom, Chrysostom, great preacher, Augustine, his mother Monica will be there, reformers, Zwingli, Calvin, Luther, and his precious wife, Catherine, Along with the Puritans, Bunyan and Owen and Susanna Wesley. Missionaries like David Brainerd and Amy Carmichael and Lottie Moon. John and Betty Stam. Along with the preachers of old, Charles Spurgeon, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, James Montgomery Boyce. If you've read any Christian biography about someone, maybe some obscure missionary biography, I've read a number of those from time to time, they'll be there. And those they've converted. And, and the untold millions, tens, hundreds of millions, maybe a billion, maybe several billion people will be there at this feast. <clears throat> Many of whom you've never heard of. That's how big this wedding feast is going to be. Bigger than anything we've ever had. Bigger than a royal wedding. With millions watching, billions watching on TV. This is, this is the biggest and blessed are you if you've been called to the feast. That's what verse 9 says. Look at it. An angel said to me, write this. <clears throat> blessed are you who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Are you going to be at that feast? Are you going to be blessed? 
Jesus said, many will come from the east and the west to recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Are you going to be part of that many? Are you part of the bride? Right now, you know, here again, right, the revelation metaphor, right, because it's, it's, it's the bride, but the bride are the ones invited, right? It's, you understand? It's a picture. Are you part of the great prostitute that will be judged? Now, this isn't the first time the marriage metaphor is used in the Bible to describe God and his people. It's not like John just pulled this up or this appeared to him like, whoa, what it, what, whoa, how is it that people are going to marry Jesus? Like, how is that? No, it's been oftentimes before. God, God often talked about Israel being his wife. Isaiah 54, 5, for your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name. Or Jeremiah 31, thanks verse 31, they, they broke my covenant, though I was their husband. I, I was their husband. They were unfaithful to me. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians 5 describes the church as the bride of Christ. In that chapter, Paul speaks about how Jesus came and and gave himself up for the bride, dying for her on the cross, cleansing of her sins, sanctifying her by the washing of the water with the word, so that, Ephesians 5.27, he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And that, that Paul wrote... In Ephesians 5, back in A.D. 50 or 60 or whatever it is, is still waiting its fulfillment. But we see its fulfillment right here in Revelation chapter 19. It's when the church, without spot or blemish, because of the sacrificial death of Christ, cleansing the church, cleansing all those who believe and trust Him by faith, He makes His bride pure and holy so they can wed. It's the good news that we embrace, right? That, not that we've been so lovely a perfectly good. In fact, Jesus died for us when we were sinners, when we were ugly. But he wanted a pure bride. So he died for us to purify us so he could bring us to himself pure and holy. Cleansed, made righteous before the Lord. Just simply by faith, we just trust the Lord. We confess our sins. Say, Christ, I, I failed. I confess my sin. And he makes us holy and righteous. Jesus died to cleanse us that, that one day we would enjoy the, the wedding day. When the church is united of all time with her lover, Jesus, who pursues the church, sanctifies the church, weds the church. That's what we see here in Revelation 19. We see the pure and spotless bride being presented to her husband. And the question is, are you going to be at that feast? Are you going to be there? It's where you want to go. You ever get invited to a wedding and say, I don't want to go? Maybe maybe sometimes. Mostly not. Most like, I'm going to go. There's going to be good food. There's going to be a party. There's going to be music. There's going to be celebration. Let's go. Let's join in the happiness. I love weddings for that reason. All is happy. Jesus loved to use this wedding illustration, by the way, about the end of time. He uses wedding to describe end of time. Revelations talk about end of time. He uses wedding metaphor as well. And every one of these stories... He talks about those coming to the feast and those left out. That's how he uses the illustration, right? There's this big feast, and there, there are some who are there, but there's some who miss out. That's why I've been pressing. Are you going to be there? Are you going to be there? Matthew 25, Jesus told the story of ten virgins. They took their lamps to go wait and meet for the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five of them were wise. The, the foolish ones took no oil for the lamp. And they, they had their lamp going, and then the bridegroom tallied, wait, wait, dallied, waited for a little bit, tarried, and then their flame went out. 
And they asked the wise, can you give us some oil? <laughs> no, no, ours might run out too. So while they were out getting their oil, that's when the bridegroom returned. And when they returned, the door was shut to them. And they came. And they knocked and they banged on the door and said, Lord, Lord, open to us. And the Lord refused them and said, I do not know you. Here's a wedding feast. Not all are coming. Are you going to be there? You'll be blessed if you're there. I'm trying to draw you with the, the joy and delight of the wedding feast. Be there. In Luke chapter 14, Jesus was at a feast and he tells a story about a feast. Maybe it's not a wedding reception, but the, the metaphor certainly fits. Luke 14, 15 and following, he says this. When one of those reclined at the table heard him, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. And she says, Okay, the kingdom of God is kind of like this, this big banquet. <clears throat> but he said, A man once gave a great banquet, invited many. At the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all like began to make excuses. The first said to him, I bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. Another said, I, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I have to examine them. Please have me excused. Another said, I've married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. And then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the servant said, Sir, what? What you have commanded has been done, and still there's room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you that none of those men who are invited shall taste my banquet. So it gives a little insight here. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage feast. This doesn't necessarily mean like you've received an invitation. Because everyone is invited to this marriage supper in, in one regard. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. That's, that's the waiting for Jesus. Anyone wants to come to Jesus, anyone can come. But of course, there are many who don't, who are in their sin, refuse to come, make excuses, and don't come. So this, this invitation word, blessed are those who are invited. More, it's blessed are those who are called to the wedding feast. Blessed are those who are summoned and they come and they enjoy the wedding feast. Not merely receiving an invitation, but acting upon it. The invitation is trust in me. Act upon that. Trust in Christ and come to the feast and know the joy of that. But we must come prepared as well. Matthew 22, Jesus told another wedding parable. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. That's exactly what we're talking about here. The wedding feast for his son, the king giving it, Jesus and his bride. And he sent servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. And he sent some other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I prepared my dinner, my oxen, my, my fat calves have been slaughtered. Everything's ready, come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention, went off one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. So here, come to a wedding. And you get beaten and killed. People of Israel killed the prophets in Jerusalem. And they killed Jesus, the great one, to invite him. The king was angry. He sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite the wedding feast as many as you can. And those servants went to the roads and gathered all they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. And that's the idea here, right? 
Anyone can come. It's not just those who are specifically on the invitation list. Jesus says, come, come and be there. But finally, when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there's a man who had no wedding garment. He said to him, friend, how'd you get in here without a wedding garment? He was speechless. And then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Smoke of her torment goes up forever and ever. Revelation 19, verse 3, for many are called, but few are chosen. There's the calling going out, but then there's the calling of God, the choosing of God, the coming. Are you going to come? There isn't a more parallel account in all the Bible of Revelation chapter 19. Are you coming to the feast? Do you have your wedding garment? You say, what's my wedding garment? Maybe Isaiah 61 verse 10 gives us an insight. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He's covered me with the robe of righteousness. That's the reality of Christ. Right? When we believe and trust in him, we are given new garments. Right? We're, we're, we're given righteous garments, just like Joshua of old was given the new garments, the priests in Zechariah chapter 3. You can read that. So the gospel, he takes our shabby clothes and gives us new clothes, like, Pil- like John Bunyan wrote in Pilgrim's Progress. About the man with the shabby clothes, the burden on his back, but when he looked to the cross, the burden fell off his back and he was given shiny new clothes. It's, not, it's the righteousness of Christ that's given to us when we believe and trust in him. It's the gospel. Well, I told you at the beginning of my message that we'd celebrate the Lord's Supper. I want to transition there just by saying this. The, the Lord's Supper is like the rehearsal dinner to this great marriage feast. Right? In the rehearsal dinners, I love rehearsal dinners every bit as much as I love weddings. Because at them it's loose, it's sort of fun. You get to enact what's going to take place. Sometimes you get married several times before, right? Well, well you'll say tomorrow. But it's kind of like the same thing happening. People walk down that aisle, that bride walks down the aisle, you come and you go back and forth. You gotta, and then you have that rehearsal dinner. You just rehearse everything. You're thinking about what's going to take place the next day, how it's going to all be arranged, where you need to be, how you need to get there. And that's what the Lord's Supper is. Jesus was giving the rehearsal dinner for his ultimate wedding day when he took the bread and he said, this is my body broken for you. And when he drank that cup and he said, this cup is the cup of the new covenant in my blood Drink this as often you do in remembrance of me, right? Remembering that the, that the way we get to the feast is through the, the, the body, blood of Christ. Not, not through the blood, the blood, the, the, the bread. The, the bread is bread. It's no hocus pocus here, but it's, it's a way that we, we taste. John saw and he heard, and in this feast we taste. And we think about Christ. I want to remind you one last time this rehearsal dinner about the gospel. Paul said this, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance to the scriptures. And then his resurrection, he appeared to Cephas and the twelve, five hundred brothers, and then he appeared to Paul. So what happened afterwards, when he, he says, this is my body, this is my blood, this is the gospel, that we trust in that. So if you're here today and you believe and trust in Christ, the receiving the bread and drinking the cup doesn't get you to heaven. It's just merely saying, hey, I'm trusting only in Jesus. It's my only hope is in God alone. Let's bow our heads. Prepare our hearts. Paul told us that before we eat, we should examine ourselves to see whether we eat or drink in an unworthy manner. And that just means walking in willful sin, 
not trusting in the Lord, but trusting in your own works, your own righteousness, thinking you're, you're a pretty good person. We're not. We're, we're sinners saved by grace, and that's how we come. We come brokenhearted. We come sorrowing for our sin. We come repentant, desiring the Lord would, would come and, and bless us and help us. Even Psalm 34, we were there today in our, in our prayer meeting today. It says, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. That's who we are. We're, we're brokenhearted coming before the Lord. And He offers us the bread of life. He offers us drink that will never thirst again. It's all found in Jesus. So I encourage you, just examine your hearts right now. Examine your lives. Repent of sin. Trust in the Savior. Come to the feast. I'd love to see you there for your joy. And so now, Christ, I pray as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, as you told us to and commanded to, we are remembering you today and remembering the, the sacrifice of, of Christ. Lord, I, I pray that we would just reflect upon you, turn our eyes upon Christ, upon Jesus. And this time, may we commune with you and just have a, a foretaste of what that great wedding supper of the Lamb will be like. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.